I was like, I need to test some of this out. So I'd put it in a vial and, and crack it next to a beehive and they get all angry. So it was like having my own little like bee deployment bomb. As long as you're walking around like the deep jungle with the boots, you're going to be good to go. A cool document of piranha actually killing people. Believe it or not, they have only eaten corpses that have already drowned in rivers, like such as in boat accidents and things. As far as being snake infested, I wish. Hey guys, welcome to The Survival Show Podcast with me, David, and Craig, where it's our job to take you step-by-step through the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster. And our goal is to show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. What's going on, Craig? Life. Turkey hunting. <laughs> Turkey hunting this time of year, man. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of stuff going around now and all kinds. Of, spring is a busy time for Craig Cottle. That's when I start getting tired and talking about myself in the third person like that. And who knows what's going to happen. You're into your training season now, right? I am. And it's been incredibly busy thus far. And there is no letting up until a month or two from now. Yeah. You know what's up? It was really nice. And so I was like, this is fantastic because Joe, you'll pre- <laughs> Joe, I just did a spoiler. We have Joe Flowers on the show today. Shh, I'm not here. <laughs> Don't say anything yet, Joe, please. Shh. <laughs> but, but I keep bees and I got my bees thinking we were going to have some great weather. And we are in this cold, rainy weather pattern with a new package of bees here, Joe. And uh, so we are currently remediating that. But Craig... You're going to like this. The Kickstarter, the tiny survival guide Kickstarter. We're going to start shipping guides and cards next week. So that is fantastic. I am looking forward to that, but it's going to take like the next two weeks. But that's cool. So, Craig, bring us from here. All right, guys and gals, our mission here is to help you progressively increase your survival IQ. So you leave out of here better prepared at the end of the show than you were at the beginning. Okay, guys. So coming up, even though I had a little spoiler. Hey, Joe. Hello. Um, yeah, we've got a pile of interesting topics with our special guest, Joe Flowers. Joe's the founder of Bushcraft Global. Joe's an adventurer, YouTuber, knife designer, writer, jungle survival expert, wilderness guide, mar- martial arts instructor. I can barely say it. There's so much. He's also a zoologist and he likes bugs. And in general, I met Joe a few years ago and he is one of the most interesting men on the planet. So here's a few topics we're going to dig into today. Jungle dangers, myths, and survival skills. Piranhas and crocodiles. Venomous snakes, edible bugs, knife design, martial arts, maybe. Um, I know he's been in search of the world's most interesting animals. He loves bushcraft, beekeeping. We may get into a whole lot more knowing Joe as well as I do. All right, guys, you ready to do this? Let's get into this. All right, Joe, before we get into all this, there's something that's coming up that's timely and really, I think, a once in a lifetime event. You want to tell the guys a little bit about this? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm pretty excited about this. June 10th through the 14th is the Global Bushcraft Symposium in Alberta, Canada. There's only been one other big meeting like this of all the legendary people out in the bushcraft survival and traditional skills um, field. We've got Tons of amazing keynote speakers. We've got Morris Kahansky. You know, he's not he's not traveling much right now. So this might be one of uh, your only times to meet Morris Kahansky. Lars Fault, um, international amazing survival instructor, uh, started the um, uh, essay or has taught with the England SAS and, and started the Swedish um, survival uh, stuff. Cody London is going to be there from from TV and, of course, 98.6 Degrees, the art of uh, keeping your body alive. Lars Falt himself, he, sw- he founded the Swedish Armed Forces Arrival School. Les Stroud is going to be there too. We've got all these amazing keynote speakers, and then there's going to be a bunch of presenters too that are uh, pretty popular in the industry right now. The whole goal is to try and spread out all these skills and, and context that we're learning through, you know, everything that's becoming popular right now. Um, open exchange of philosophies, methods, best practices in the industry. Meet some of the great people who were there before the internet was even invented. Um, and before, you know, survival even started being written about in books uh, very, very uh, um, in-depth. And really, really, really 
a chance to see legends in the industry. There's going to be skills. I'm hosting a knife craft camp there. Um, and there's an axe craft camp. There's all sorts of different camps. It's June 10th through the 14th, 2019. It's only going to be one. So do not miss it. Any way you can get there, you need to get there. If you consider yourself um, a student or interested in anything bushcraft, because this is only going to happen once. Um, you can find out more information on bushcraftsymposium.com. Bushcraftsymposium.com. Oh, it's fantastic, Joe. I don't think anybody needs to miss that if they can possibly make it at all. Um, really appreciate you Brent, making us where so for those that are listening more Skahansky is going to be on a podcast coming up soon as well if you haven't already heard it depending on when all these go live so you'll hear a lot more about the symposium and, and it's it's going to be worth every second i listen to Moore's because uh, i interviewed him and i got into talking about how t- how to go about teaching skills and sharing skills and how he went about it and how he recommends it and so it's just you know, legends like Morse Kahansky is just, and, and he talked about Lars and everything Lars has done there in that interview as well. So don't miss it guys. If you can do it, man, you know, this is incredible. They're all going to be talking together there. So it's like having all the martial arts instructors from all over the world come together and hang out and talk about stuff. Um, or, or, you know, this, that, and the other, I mean, just, to, just to see that, um, uh, you know, camaraderie is, is, is amazing. I really can't wait. If, if you can bend, bend time, find a way to get there because you do not want to miss this. It's going to be incredible. So Joe, let's go ahead and uh, get into the rest of the show today. Thanks for bringing that up. And, and let's do that by you just telling us about your background if you don't care. So Joe, David set you up to be the most interesting man in the world. Is that actually who you are? No, I, I'm not the Dos Equis <laughs> guy. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's what I was wondering. Yeah. I was like, come on, he man. He can tie a tie really well and I'm actually not so good at it. <laughs> I just have a lot of passions, I guess. And that's what makes things interesting is how passionate people are about stuff. So tell me a little bit, because Joe, we if you recall, uh, you may or may not, we met last, what was it, last shot show? Yeah, yeah, last, yeah shot show last year and chatted briefly. But for everybody that's listening, won't you go ahead and tell everybody some of your backstory or as much as you want to tell, maybe how you got to where you are now and, and how all these interests that you have put you in this place? Sure. I'll try and sum it up real quick, because uh, when you talk about yourself, it can get lengthy, I guess. Well, anyway, I watched Crocodile Dundee way too much. Guy was really funny, had a big knife, liked animals, liked survival. I, you know, basically wore out the VHS cassette player watching that over and over and over again. And, you know, my love for reptiles and amphibians led me to a degree in zoology. But like when I was looking back on all my elementary school notes and stuff that my mom, you know, uh, kept in the little Tupperware containers, um, I saw all these knife, you know, drawings. And I've always always been in the knives, you know, back in the nineties, uh, I have most of the tactical knives magazines was into it at the very beginning of the quote unquote tactical knife era as a kid, you know, got on the forums with the dawn of the internet. And then from there started writing about knives and other equipment and gear. Cause I actually got out and, and used it a lot. The editors recognized that some of the knife makers that were custom makers hated it because they'd get back like a destroyed blade. Eventually I got up with Condor tool and knife and tops knives to do their designs. I am, uh, I think I've got like five or six with tops. I'm at maybe, I don't know, at least 80 designs oh, wow. with Condor. Yeah, nice. I call that like a good start. Cause I'm like, there's so many that we've said no to. And they're not all pretty, but a lot of most of them are functional. There are some that I shouldn't have designed, but uh, that's for another story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it brings up a good topic too, Joe. If you don't mind us me digging into this sure. one before you continue on, is is I think a lot of people need to understand that there is no perfect knife. Everybody needs to find the knife that works for them, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm assuming that's why you've got 80 different knives designed because you've got to find that knife that's going to fit different hands, different environments, different this, different that. You know, it's it's all, you know, encompassing what people are doing out there. And, and, and it's also what's popular, you know. Sadly enough, um, people like, you know, swords, but they're not bushcrafting the swords. But there's a need for those out there mm-hmm. for people to make actual user swords. So I had to go into doing sword research and all that stuff, for instance. And then seeing, you know, the variations of, what people are actually using out in the bush on a day to day shows how those little intrinsic parts go into a knife design. And, you know, nobody, everybody uh, is going to have multiple knives. That's the cool part. 
Um, you find one and you're, you're happy with it, but I guarantee you probably after about two years, even though you think that was a holy grail, you're thinking about another knife. And, and at, for me, you know, like when I was, before I designed and even when I'm designing, there's like a knife that I always go to, to use. And I always grab that one coming out for me. It was, uh, either the Skookum Bush tool or the, uh, Pterosaur by Brian Andrews. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, like I'm still just grabbing other knives are around those are like oh, that's the one i'm going to take with me here yeah so it's always changing joe can we dig in a little little bit to your wilderness your interest for the outdoors animals bugs and all that kind of maybe a little divergence from knives unless knives ties into that but i'm really interested to hear that kind of backstory too yeah no problem knives does kind of knives do knives does knives do kind of tie into that because like as of right now for instance condor wants me to design a karambit and you know I, I don't do much Krav Maga, but you know, karambits only have so much that you can do with them unless you look at the mouth parts of ants. And so I'm scanning electron micrographs right now to see why, you know, these ants have such, you know, horrible looking pinchers and try and get that in the design. I got into bugs in zoology, you know, mostly I went into bugs because I was really into reptiles and amphibians, still am, but my buddies who are into reptiles and amphibians were so into it, that was their only passion. You know, I'm into knives, I'm into Godzilla, I'm into uh, reptiles and amphibians, I'm into fixing my car, all that stuff. They are 100%, you know, reptiles and amphibians all the time. And in the zoology world, it's not as easy to get a job with that. And at that time, I took my first entomology class and fell in love with that too. So I pursued entomology as my minor and concentration, and then got hired by NC State in the beekeeping and vegetable pest management, but uh, in beekeeping afterwards and worked for NC State uh, University in the uh, apiary department of entomology. So is that where you went to school yes. too, Joe? You went to NC State? Mm-hmm. Okay. I almost went into the Marines, started you know training and doing some of the PLC stuff with them. But then, man, when NC State told me, hey, you can live at this bee lab, free water, free internet, free utilities, you know, and do all this stuff, which is basically like this old dilapidated house with like hundreds and hundreds of beehives in the back. I was like, uh, I'm going to take this offer up because I get to work outside the whole time. Yeah, you get stung. One time I got stung 80 times, but uh, it was really fun because, you know, it was so different every single day. That's part of the word getting stung, I'm assuming. So, yeah. yeah. I, you know, back then it was really cool because have you guys ever played paintball? Yes. All right. So, you know, like when you're playing it and you get hit, it's like, ah, it hurts, but I'm, I'm having fun. And if you right. keep doing it, <laughs> that's beekeeping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, after you keep doing it day after day after day, you probably don't care about getting hit by paintball. You know, for me, that was being stung, you know, on the hands and things like that. So like I never wore beekeeping equipment unless it was a particularly nasty hive because it was just, it was just so darn hot outside. So what do you mean by, uh, I, I haven't had bees or we haven't kept bees since I was a kid and I really didn't know anything about it. But how do you know it's a nasty hive? Uh, they're mean right away. They start they clouding. They come after you. They're yeah. aggressive. You'll start getting dinged in the head. Like they'll do some kind of like dry run where they'll hit you in the head and you'll see more and more hmm. and more of them. You'll see a level of agitation with clouding where the bees are kind of bubbling out of the top of the super. They're just not chill. Nice. I mean, after doing it for a while, you'll see, okay, these guys are tranquil. Yeah. And the sound, Rachel. Yeah, the sound for sure about the mean ones coming around your head. You can hear them right away because they have a higher pitch. The sound is sometimes hard, though, because you can have a queenless colony, and that sounds a little bit different, too. If they're, if they're, if they're going through a queen succession, they'll have like a roaring sound as well. So is that the – I'm sorry. I'm getting off on a tangent here. we got a lot to do, <laughs> but this intrigues me. But so tell me about tell me about the sound. You're saying the whole hive as a whole – Will have a, a certain sound to it that's higher pitched. Yeah, when they're no? when their queen mm-hmm. when their queen is dead or they're getting a new queen, they're in oh. a little bit of state of agitation as well. So is that them beating their wings that's making that yeah, sound? Yeah, that's, that's actually the muscles buzzing inside thorax where the uh, where they're not. They can be moving their wings too sometimes, but yeah, it's basically that they're going to be moving mm-hmm. their wings when they're making a really loud, angry sound around you, and you'll hear it. It sounds like. Sounds like, you know, a cartoon, Tom and Jerry or something. It was cool too. This is my last rant about that. Working for the lab was incredible. I got to make fires with my fire steel every day to get the smoker going. But I got so many stories for that. But one day we got this uh, synthesized alarm pheromone. 
So the alarm pheromone is a pheromone that they have that makes them angry. I was like, I need to test some of this out. So I'd put it in a vial and, and crack it next to a beehive and they get all angry. So it was like having my own little like bee deployment bum. Nice. So after this, Joe, where we where do you find yourself after this type of work at NC State? Well, I met my wonderful, lovely and beautiful wife, Ashley. And my uh, boss at the time got a chance to move up to Pennsylvania. It was kind of offered more or less that I could move up there and, and you know, continue to be a technician with them. But that wasn't in my long-term plans because my wife wanted to move up to where I'm at now, the mountains in North Carolina. So I worked for Syngenta Biotechnology for like three months and then moved up to the mountains. And uh, that's where we're at now. They don't have a call for beekeepers here. And I I don't want to do beekeeping full-time now. I know that enough. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, I've been uh, running around doing my own stuff with the knife designs, with Bushcraft Global, the jungle stuff. Um, teaching martial arts at the local wellness center and uh, all sorts of fun stuff. That's really great, Joe. So let's dig into Bushcraft Global. You want to tell the guys what it is? How did it start? Kind of your passion behind that and where you take people and all that sort of stuff. Well, I could tell you how it started in a really, really fast way. I had to take over an expedition when a guy was um, out of sorts with some of the authorities there. And I had to help him while he was uh, figuring out what to do to get over the borders and basically, you know, help take over his expedition in the middle of Letitia, which David, you've been to, right? I have. Yes, I have. Yeah. So it's like a, a village and well, it's a town, dude. What would you say it is? It's, I would go, it's a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be, but it's, it's a different world down there. No yeah, doubt. Yeah. It's a, it's a town. I'd say it's a town, but I had been stuck there for like two weeks in the middle of the jungle, but in the town and I hadn't seen anything creepy or crawly at all. So I found an American buddy who I became friends with and he's like, you need to go to this uh, place called Tanamboca Serpentarium, stay the night. And I went there and I saw all these amazing poison dart frogs and tarantulas that are just massive and, and bats and possums and all this stuff in one night. And I, I, I like died right there. I was just like, this is amazing. I wake up in the morning and uh, Gorin, the, my partner now, comes out. He's just like smoking a cigarette, you know, always him hawing with the tourists. Hey, man, what do you do? And I'm like, uh, well, I designed knives and read about knives. Really? I love knives. Check this out. And he showed me a knife that he had. And he's like, and I was like, yeah, I like survival skills and stuff. He's like, you need to come to my house right now. And uh, he showed me all his blow guns and fire making friction kits and all this stuff from the indigenous tribes. And he's like, Joe, I have this idea. I want to bring, you know, Americans and people to learn skills from these indigenous tribesmen because it helps them keep a part of their tradition alive and, and, and also helps them monetarily. And it's really, it's really freaking cool, man. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, but I can't market it. And I'm like, well, I know a guy. And so that's how Bushcraft Global uh, started. I, uh, Gorn and I worked together on different trips. Every single trip is a little bit different, David. Last trip was incredible. And I, I saw when I was in the jungle that night, I was like, I need to figure out a way to come back here because this is like my home away from home. You know, every time I wake up in the morning and I hear just that ambiance of chirping frogs and, and the greenery and the scenery. I was like, there's no way I can't not come back here. And of course, negotiations went with my wife and uh, I was able to start Bushcraft Global. So how much time do you spend there, Joe, throughout a, in, in a 12-month period of time? How, how much are you down there? Uh, it depends year to year. Sometimes I go down twice. Sometimes I go down once, like about 15 days normally. And then of course, El Salvador I go to, but that's not as jungly as Tanaboca. The first time I was down there, I was down there for like 35 days. I'd be down there more. The only hard part is finding babysitters. <laughs> when the kids are older. <laughs> right. I'm just going to bring them down there because my, my uh, one daughter, Elizabeth, is uh, friends with Donica, Gorn's daughter. And uh, they met in Columbia a couple of times. So I go to Columbia, you know, at least once or twice a year. So Joe, this is an expedition into the jungle and specifically Columbia based, although I think you guys went over to Peru this yeah. last year. Is that correct? So the, so the whole idea is everybody who, who signs up likes knives, likes survival, likes using their hands. It's a knife-based survival trip where it's not like necessarily a, a, a hey, let's kick some butt and, and, and bring you to the hardest part, you know, and, and walk through all this horrible jungle, although that's what you had to do, David. <laughs> it, but it may happen. Be prepared. Yeah, it may happen. Be prepared. Like that last trip, man, it was awesome because we were like, Gordon's like, hey, Joe, let's do some uh, lake survival. And I was like, cool. How much do these guys have to hike? Oh, just two miles. Perfect. And so they barely did like one tenth of what we did. And we had people with like, uh, you know, the um, what, what's that machine called that helps you sleep at night? 
Pat machine. Yeah, Pat machine. Yeah, they, you know, we had sleep, people, for sleep apnea. Exactly. Yeah. So we've had people, you know, of all fitness levels be able to come out on the trip. So this trip, Joe, so this is open. This is for people of all fitness levels. Anybody who really would like the experience of getting out into the rainforest, into the jungles, the biodiversity there. You want to maybe just speak to who this is for and what enrichment they'll get in this in their life, maybe in a, a new awareness of of some things. What would be the big takeaways for people if they wanted to come on a trip and how do they do that? The biggest takeaways that you get from this trip would be that it's an experience that also encapsulates training. But the training is because you're doing it, not because we gave you a seminar. Although there are some quick lessons in there about different things. Hey, this will kill you. Don't touch it. Don't fall on this. Uh, This is how to use a knife so we don't have to stitch you up or machete. You learn a lot of the stuff by doing it as an experience. The idea is we want people of of all backgrounds to be able to come on this. You're paying us for a vacation, essentially, an adventure vacation. So we're not starving you. You're eating. Most of the time when you're down there, a lot of the rich cultural food that we have available. David, we did some cool breads on sticks last time. Um, Nice. And great coffee every day. Yeah, Colombian coffee. And you see from your day-to-day experiences with the tribesmen and and that, how they're getting by with very, very inexpensive gear, how they're getting by by just being reliant on themselves. And through that, it gives you a chance to have – more respect and reliance on yourself too. So when you go back home, you know, hey, all right, I've got a hole in this tarp. What would Alberto do? What would, you know, they do? And to see how people get get by in this this walk of life really, really helps you appreciate what we have, at least here in, in North America and anywhere else as well. And, you know, we do custom trips too. So if you've got like a son and a daughter you want to bring down there, you don't want them to stay, you know, 12 days out in the jungle we can do five days. We can do four days with just one indigenous tribesman and, you know, various different things where they're like, hey, I want to do the jungle trip. Awesome. But I want to do some tourism stuff in, in Leticia and go check out the island where we get to hold monkeys and stuff. That's no problem, too. But the Bushcraft Global Trip itself, I know for sure, is unlike any other trip out there. The way we have it designed is because we were, you know, lovers of this area, you know, survival and stuff. And, and every single year, it's something kind of different. And that, that's what makes it really interesting. When David was down there, we did the big jungle hike. Last year, we were peacock bass fishing. Sometimes you have to uh, pay $5,000 to fish for peacock bass out in lakes in uh, Colombia and Costa Rica, etc. And that was pretty cool. Except for when like, I have like a $150 fishing rig and the Matisse like, go and grab a tree and, and rig it up without a reel and are able to catch like a 25-pound <laughs> peacock bass and I barely caught any. That's an experiential learning right oh, there yeah. again, right, Joe? Yeah, it's not the bow, it's the Indian. <laughs> Here, there you go. There you go. I love that. <laughs> and guys, if, if you're interested in hearing or seeing, actually seeing, right, Joe, uh, uh, quite a bit more, I think there's a six-part series that I did while I was there on the trip. There is guys. an epic six-part series on YouTube <laughs> made by Ultimate Survival Tips. Just a disclaimer, he made it very, very, very uh, epic. And how would you say? Epic. Epic. Definitely. You don't get stopped by policemen (laughs) when you're down there, mostly, unless you're David. Um, Or miss your plane flight or many of the other things that happen. Only happen to me when the camera's on. Yeah, exactly. My life is otherwise totally boring, but when the camera's on, right, Craig? (laughs) No joke. Stuff just happens. Yeah. So, you know, use that as a guide of stuff that happens, but uh, don't be scared afterwards. It's really, really easy. I mean, we've, we had a whole group of people from um, uh, Wisconsin last year and it was a fantastic trip. Just with some of the best people I've had out in the jungle. So Craig, I think this leads into your question as I'm looking at it on the notes here about fears people have. You want to get into that with Joe? Yeah. The, I guess the big thing is for, for people that are familiar with North America, maybe mixed hardwood forest or maybe even boreal forest, going to a jungle area seems, hey, there's so many unknowns. So with those unknowns, what are the things that we can tell them on this podcast that, hey, don't we worry about it. It's not that bad. Or, you know, there's snakes everywhere. Are there snakes everywhere? Those kind of things. What, What can we say to those people that might be interested in doing something like that? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the same situation whenever you go into a bad spot of town or, or anything along that line. If you mind your own business, the animals will stay away from you. And that goes for everything out there. As far as being snake infested, I wish. I really do. Um, I'd stay out till three o'clock in the morning looking for snakes almost every night on a couple of occasions. And you just don't find them because everything's so cryptically camouflaged there. Everything in the Amazon jungle likes to live by not being noticed. And that's kind of the vibe that you, you get down there. I mean, David, how many snakes did we see down there? Like two? They are hard to find. And the night walks, we, we saw most, yep. you know, a lot more just because of the eye shine. It was easier to find stuff. Yeah, we had to go looking for them. And so snake infestation is not a problem. Most of the animals are very non-aggressive, even uh, both rops. You know, Gordon has stories of him stepping on one and it not biting him. So it's the same deal as in like North America where everything gets a bad rap. There are tons of spiders down there. Spiders are this alien looking eight-legged, you know, animal that always inspires, you know, fear in your uh, mind. But the spiders there are actually very, very non-aggressive too. I've helped quite a few people get over their arachnophobia down there. There are some big spiders and you do get to see them, but they keep to themselves. If you want them gone, you just move them with your machete. Or, or stomp on them. They're not like all over the place. So a couple other things that comes up, and I, I'm just speaking from, you know, this is people that are, are interested, but they may have a misconception of what's going on. What about jaguars and piranhas and all these things that it, it's no different than here. People are afraid of, but they don't need to be afraid of. What, what about those topics? The jaguars, they're always curious, but they're never like they never want to take on humans. Jaguar attacks are so few and far between. You hear stories from people you know, just like you hear stories back in the 50s about people in the bayous and large alligators. But as far as actual historical accounts of attacks, they're very few far between because jaguars are opportunistic. They got to keep their energy in check and getting a human requires a ton of energy. They may stalk you for a little bit, but that's only happened once with me and Alberto. And that was a different story where we were really deep in the jungle. It didn't even see it. You won't see them. Piranha, there has never been a historical document of piranha actually killing people. Believe it or not, they've only killed people who, or they have only eaten corpses that have already drowned in rivers, like such as in boat accidents and things. Okay. So this sort of thing in, in all seriousness, show, I love talking about these topics yeah. because there are so many things that are just wrong. Oh gosh. Yeah. Do you know why people are so afraid of piranha? Is it just some sort of Hollywood movie thing that happened 40 years ago and now everybody thinks it's true or what, what causes that sort of mindset on Let's say piranhas, for example. Piranhas, they sometimes bite people. You know, they'll take a, they won't take a chunk out of somebody, but it's typically injuries to like the feet or the hands. They're normally like. Does that cause some sort of frenzy of activity no, or no? No, no, no. Or is just that depends. just a misconception? Um, okay. Like it's mostly to the feet and it's mostly like one bite and going, oh, okay. You know, and like the only time they get into that frenzy, there are certain species that get into that frenzy. It has to be in like a high stress situation where there's like hardly any water left. And they're all just, it's like Black Friday. So okay. like, the, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, like that's, it. you know, the, in, in for people to, you know, yeah, people might get bit a little bit, but it's like a tiny little kitty bite. We've had one guy get bit on one trip, but I don't think it was by a piranha. I think, I think he got scratched by a piece of wood that was on the ground. Cause I went to the same spot and got hit by that same piece of wood underneath the water. And we were swimming in piranha infested. Uh, waters the entire time, all like 10 of us, you know, not a problem at all. Everybody always does it. We were catching them left and right. They're super tasty. We really, really caught them this time. David, like probably over 30, 40. Nice. Yeah, it was amazing. I I remember the one swimming hole that we went in and I was in there talking to Goran about caiman and crocodiles and piranhas and this, this very topic. And he said, David, look down. There's piranhas just swimming around our feet right now. There is, there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. So I can, I can attest to what Joe's saying. Yeah. There's, you know, I, you know, looking back, if I think about it, I think it, recently there have been like two, like quote unquote fatal attacks. One guy was drunk in the water and they were still trying to figure him out, still trying to figure out if he drowned. So that, you know, piranha attacks sure. doesn't happen. Does not happen. So I, I think Dave has got some questions. While you were talking, I was thinking about you talking about uh, snakes and what have you. 
If you're deep in the jungle, what, what do you do for a venomous snake bite? We carry antivenom with us. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a, in, in that country and a couple of other countries, there's different types of crow fab out there that uh, is actually a powder antivenom. And uh, we have people who can administer it in the jungle. So that Powder? How do, you, how do you administer that? I think Does it mixes. It I haven't done it yet, thank God. And I always just look at the box as a holy grail, but it mixes in. I believe. I have to double check to make sure that's the same uh, serum that we're using right now because it might be a vial now. A little, a little while ago, it used to be powder that you mix up into a uh, uh, water concoction and inject. I know my daughter, who's a type 1 diabetic, she has to always carry a glucagon pen. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it carries the same way too. It's got a powdered mixture and another mixture that you just mix together and the, the syringe is there. You just pop it open, mix the two, and then you inject. Yeah, I, I think that's the deal with this stuff. And I'm assuming you have to extract too. I mean, even, even though you get them oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you venom, you, you got to get out right, now. Right, right, yeah. And, you know, we make it so that there's always a way to get somewhere quicker than the way they take us. Right, understand. And, and, understand. and uh, indigenous themselves are so freaking strong. You know, three of them can haul somebody no problem out of the jungle, you name it. But like, for instance, it would not have been an issue at all to get them to a good facility last year within like an hour. In in David's case, it would have taken a little bit longer, but they would have been okay with the anti-venom. Snake bites are pretty few and far between as far as fatalities go when you have that venom with you. Because you don't have, like you said, just to clarify, you, you mentioned that there's no real aggressive snakes there. I mean, for the most part, they just do their own thing right. and try to stay off to their to their own self. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. There was one year where one of the guides put his bag on a uh, on a fertilance and it was moving, 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 moving and it was stuck on the bag. So if he got up, it would bite him. Um, so they had to end up macheting that one and we ate it and it was really tasty. That's the only time, but he still had like the boots on. And as long as you're walking around like the deep jungle with the boots, you're going to be good to go. In camp, it's kind of okay to be in crocs or barefoot because the amount of movement and reverberation in the soil makes all the animals either scatter or just hang tight and not come out. Interesting. Same deal here. Are you listening to him say crocs, David? That's right. And guess what? I didn't take any, and that was my first introduction. I had South American made crocs, and I literally wore those out, didn't I, Joe, in those two weeks? Yeah, gosh. I don't care how lame they are. Crocs are my go-to. Lame. They're not no, lame, they're awesome. son. Let me tell you, I'm a huge fan of Crocs. Everybody knows I'm a Crocs fan, so I just, anytime anybody brings them up, I like to. Okay, well, here, I got some Croc knowledge for you. Lay it on me, brother. You can put it in the dryer for like two or three minutes on high heat and stretch them out or shrink them to get them to fit your foot better. Rock and roll, son. Yeah, it, um, I, I got a it. pair of size eight from a guy last year, and they have cool yeah. treads. They're one of these outdoor ones. It's like, it's like the perfect Croc for me, but they were size eight, and I wear a size 10. I Googled how to resize Crocs and found a, um, <laughs> a thing about it. Because I remember one time I left some in my car and they shrunk. And it's a PVA sole. So, of course, the whole entire material is, is a thermo. I'm not up with the uh, uh, plasticity of it, but easily moldable. So you put some thick socks on, you throw it in the, in the laundry machine, in the uh, dryer, and then you walk around with those thick socks on and boom, you got stretched out Crocs. Nice. nice. David, I'm done here. My job is done. I know more information about Crocs, so I don't need to know anything more. Well, Craig, I'm going to bring up one more topic that you're passionate about with <laughs> Joe here, and that's hammocks. One thing in, in all of our conversation here, I, I think sleeping arrangements is one of the most important, Joe, and you want to be using some sort of a hammock. And actually, we showed folks, you showed folks, the indigenous did in one of the videos from my trip, how to make a hammock out of tree bark woven. But you want to just talk a little bit about sleeping arrangements and just keeping off the ground and the importance of that in maybe rainforests and swamp areas and stuff like that. Yeah, for the most part, you want to keep off the ground, mainly because of the ants. The ants are always on an onslaught down in the rainforest. They're always there. They're always present. They're interested in your sweat. They're interested in the food that's out there. They're interested in something different. And so you want to get off the ground to have a more pleasant experience. Now, you can sleep on the ground. Uh, last year, Victor had a tent. He had a whole big tent set up just because he wasn't backpacking so much. Sure enough, there are little holes all over his tent where the ants hmm. chewed little holes in there. Sleeping off the ground is is uh, easier because the ground is always wet and saturated. And it's just in, in, in the whole part safer and more comfortable too. Hey, just because, jumping in here real quick, just because I'm so unfamiliar with the area of the world that you're speaking of, what is the temperature climate like? Is it the same throughout the year? Yeah, there's like a cold snap of like five days where it gets down to like 
60s or 50s. Kind of incredible. I've only heard what, about it. What I time of year is that? Uh, I believe in October, January, huh. somewhere around there. And then the rest of the time it's hot. Yeah. Like it probably it might get like as cool as 75 or 70 at night, you know, just depending. One night, David, remember those, remember when the Matisse were cold? Mm-hmm. That was about as cold as it gets. Cause it's winter time there. It was, what was it? I think it was just going from winter to spring when we were down there in October, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was in, in, you know, some nights it got a little bit chilly for those guys during the daytime. It's 90 degrees, you know, lots of humidity. Drinking tons and tons and tons of water. This new stuff I have, by the way, Craig, you're a teacher who has to deal with blow out in the heat. Drip drop. Yeah. What is uh, that? Nick Gordon, guy I'm working with to get people on the trip, uh, told me about it. It's the oral rehydration salts that are like yeah. way better than Cerolite and all that. And they're available at Walgreens Pharmacy. They're pretty good. Say it again. What's the name? Drip drop. I'll look it up when we get done here. That looks good. Yeah. We had we had a class last year. We have this class called the Lost Man Exercise where people we basically take them out blindfolded and they have to use map and compass skills to navigate out. Oh man. We had a person go down on us. <laughs> and fortunately the person that he came with brought Pedialyte. And so we've been trying to come up with some other solutions just to carry stuff with us, just to make it easier to do exactly what you're describing. Drip drop is it, huh? I mean, the rehydration salt stuff is no joke. Drip drop. I love, um, not just in the jungle, of course, but here too. I use it a right. lot whenever uh, I'm doing like my canoe classes, when we're having, you know, full hundred percent exposure all the time. Um, and, and, you know, Americans having such a salt rich diet, you don't think about it too much, but the second we don't have it, our body says, Hey, <laughs> stop need pump it. the brakes here. We need some salt. So this, this brings up another topic, Joe, and, and pre- maybe prevention and care. And last week we had Creek stored on and we talked, we were going to talk about a whole lot of things, but we ended up queuing in on mosquitoes and ticks. Now mosquitoes can be really really bad in the swamps and rainforests. And I'm, I'm curious, I know there were some natural things that we did while we were down there just because of the plant material in the area. But what have you found as far as the most dangerous insects and how do you uh, prevent getting bit? And I'm, I'm assuming mosquitoes are going to be really on the top of that list when you're down in the jungle, right? Yeah, the biggest thing is yellow fever and, and malaria, but you know, modern day science has given us lots of different variations of vaccines and repellents against that. Um, pyrethrin permanone is a spray that you spray on your clothes. If you iron it into your clothes on low heat, it lasts like for 17 times longer. It's almost like using insect shield in your clothes. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, it's, 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 um, I'm trying to think of the clickbait thing. One click trick to keep mosquitoes away. But um, <laughs> permanone works really well. Then um, DEET, of course, is awesome. I mean, this stuff is melting the handle on your Jeep when you're getting out of it in the Everglades. So, like, you know it's working. Repel has this eucalyptus stuff that doesn't last long, but it works really well for natural um, things. The indigenous use huito, which you saw what happens after you start using that. You turn blue. Um, and in some cases, mud or just variations of, um, of uh, smoke and fires to get out of there. Or they just deal with it. And um, that's, that's the biggest way to, to keep the mosquito prevention down. The mosquito nets are super important for having a good night's sleep. Extremely important. And, you know, you'll learn about hammocks and all that. And you'll go, okay, this is a cool hammock until you start getting bit from underneath and figuring out, oh, that double, that double wrap works, you know, well up in uh, uh, North Carolina. But down in South Carolina where the mosquitoes get way bigger, they can go right through the two layers um, so you start to figure out, you know, Hey, I don't want to sleep in a cocoon. I want to have an open air hammock. That's warmer, uh, with, with the mosquito net way around me. So it's not touching any parts of my skin. It gives you a better, more harmonious outcome. So Joe, what was that orange plant material that made me look like an Oompa Loompa in the video? Was that a Chuto or <laughs> a chote. What, what was that? A chote. A chote. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like a, a special dye. And actually, you know, you can find like a Chote in, in various cosmetics in, in powders and pastes. Uh, and, and stuff out there. I mean, you can find it on Amazon. Um, they call it a natto powder. It's also a spice. It can keep insects away. The huito, the stuff that turns your skin blue, that stuff really keeps them away for a little while. The achote is uh, kind of like a common ingredient, you know, in, in a lot of different cuisines out there. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a Mexican, and, Caribbean. You find it out there. Okay. And it will make you look like an Oompa Loompa if you Yeah, yeah. It and it's skin. temporary dye. <laughs> Unlike the huito, which is not temporary. So Craig, you want to talk? a little bit about edible bugs at all or what, what do you Dude, got I'm all here? about bugs. 
Okay. So uh, just because I've got particularly Joe on here, because he's going to have so much knowledge on it. Can we talk about edible bugs here and there, Joe? Would you yeah. care to say something? About yeah. Anything that you want to share about edible bugs? Because that's something that we miss out on a lot in this country. People are just, they have an uh, ill-conceived idea that it's a problem when it's not. Um, so have at it. You, you're the expert here. Tell me about eating bugs here and down there. So the process of eating bugs is called entomophagy. Um, that means eating bugs, entomo, Greek insect, it, with humans for, for right now. Now, a lot of traditional cultures um, have done it for a very, very long time. Um, a lot of, uh, especially in like Thailand and the Indo-Pacific, in the, uh, in the Caribbean, South America, basically everywhere except for, for the most part, um, the United States and, and uh, uh, lots of Europe. Uh, because it has this taboo um, uh, with it. It has this like weird, oh my gosh, you're eating something with an exoskeleton. Although everybody loves shrimp, so don't don't get me wrong. It has, you know, for instance, the suru grubs, sooty grubs, the um, palm weevil uh, grubs that we ate in the Amazon have three times more protein than an equal piece of, of steak or, or things along that line. So there is a huge, huge benefit in that. And they're already raising, for instance, that species – as a, uh, a horticultural or agricultural um, source of, of food. Now, the the cool part about when you say they are they you, are you South saying they raise there's, it down there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's small scale small um, small scale insect farming, like tiny farms and stuff. Like crickets, palm weedle larvae are, are probably the most common. I mean, you'll see crickets everywhere. You go to a museum, you see powdered cricket stuff. I had powdered cricket protein bars at uh, um, LT Wright Knives' gathering last weekend. So it's, it's kind of amazing. Now, we're talking about eating insects, and, and there's a really good rule for the United States is just cook everything um, or roast everything if you can. It's just safer. There's a lot of bacteria or um, there's a lot of different types of um, parasites that, that can get into the human body. Not a lot. There's a few, but it's always safe. Just like you wouldn't need a piece of raw meat. There's no point to take a raw insect if you have a chance to. Um, then, you know, taking off some of the stuff that you don't have to really digest. Like for instance, if you're eating a big grasshopper, take off the head, take off the um, uh, legs because they're just, you know, basically chitin. Um, but uh, that's a, a big, big thing is to, to make sure you cook stuff. You don't have any type of toxicity or anything along that line. I'm sorry, Joe. I've said too before that don't eat the legs because my experience has been they'll oftentimes get hung up in your throat if you don't chew them properly. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just, yeah, I mean, you know, you're at the at the point where you're eating the, the legs. It's almost like eating bone. And, you know, it's those suru grubs, the uh, sago palm weevil, the, the palm weevil. They taste really good when fried. I mean, incredible. The, when I first And what is that the larval stage of? What is uh, that? This we, you know what gonzo is from the Muppets? Yeah. It's yeah. a beetle with a gonzo nose. That is a type of weevil. <laughs> so there's like the cotton okay. bull weevil would be a, a popular okay. one. There's a bunch of different species, but it's a palm. It's a weevil that goes into that eats palm trees. And you walk up to the palm tree, you knock on it with your machete, and you can hear them crunching away. And they are big. They're yeah, big. they are huge. And so I what is big? Pre- what do you mean? Big as three your thumb, inches. Bigger. Look up. Watch my video. Okay, Joe. Joe, I, I'm honest. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. It was okay, but I would have preferred it roasted. Yeah. No. No. I I got over the eating. What'd you it raw. do? Eat it raw. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we make everybody eat it raw. I think it's oh, video okay. three in the series. <laughs> it's not okay. such a big deal with the palm weevil because they're a, a primarily a, a, a wood-eating species, so you don't get the same type of uh, uh, problems that other stuff could have. Um, and uh, they're, they're, everybody eats them raw. Um, but, man, they taste like egg rolls when, when you cook them right. Hmm. I that mean, and let's awesome. think about this, guys. I mean, as far as farms go, if, if, if we got America in on it, It'd be way easier to farm in like one hectare, so much of that protein source versus like all these cows. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm mm-hmm. about it, man. I mean, I talk to people about it all the time, but I, I don't have an, any background experience in it. Just just from a survival perspective, but man, we are missing out. We we really here are in this country not not getting into such food. I mean, it, it is such a, a a great food source, and we just don't do anything to utilize it at all here. No, it, you know, there, there's a cool thing that um, I sometimes volunteer at called Bug Fest in Raleigh, North Carolina by the Museum of Natural Sciences, and they have Cafe Insecta. You get to try nice. all these different species of bugs from Thailand, from Mexico. And, and if you're interested in, in um, more about, you know, the process of, of, of um, eating bugs, there's a book called Man Eating Bugs. 
The Art and Science of Eating Insects. It's a neat like intro, but there's a bunch of uh, uh, things out there once you start and stem from there. It's a, it's a cool book, though. That's really good. So lightning round. Joe, what are your three favorite North American bugs that people could find pretty easily and if they roast or, or fry them would be safe to eat? Absolutely the best beetle, B-E-S-S. It's a uh, large scarab beetle that dwells in um, a lot of the hardwoods that are rotting on the ground in the U.S. Um, its grub is, is not as big as a Surrey grub, but uh, it's, it's available everywhere. They're all over the darn place. Um, and they can get pretty big. You've seen them before, like at uh, street lamps and things. You can find their beetle larvae in old down logs and split open the logs, and you can see the channels that the larvae have, car- have carved. You can find them through uh, damage of woodpeckers. You can knock on a piece of wood and hear them crunching away on the inside. Um, crickets, crickets are really, really easy to eat. Um, they're very, very palatable, mashable, um, and, and, uh, are tasty. And then, uh, different species of ants, because it's more like a spice you can use on other, other products, um, on other things kind of like to help give it just a different taste because of the uh, formic acid in ants. That's just for me personally. And, you know, if you want the wow factor, you can always go to a pet store and get mealworms that have been raised on oatmeal and stuff and have like a tasty morsel um, to freak out, you know, like students and things like that. Um, But the best beetle is I would I'm not 100 percent sure I got to do my uh, uh, research on that. But I think it's I think it's in almost like 90 percent of the states of the U.S. is the best beetle. I'll tell you what I did once, Joe. I mean, just and and it kind of freaked people out. I made a video just for the purpose of just getting attention but uh I, I taught a class where an entomologist came to the class there was it was a military camp and uh, they always have outside instructors come in me being one of them and then um, uh, this entomologist was teaching basically what you're teaching right 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 and so you know what I had to do I went out and found maggots growing on or eating on pawpaw trees and and found some maggots that were on pawpaws, and I roasted them and ate them on camera, just trying to you know get views get the oo factor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really did. But and it and they they taste like they taste like maggots. That's my go to saying. Is something tastes like what it's supposed to taste like? But they did. They tasted like pawpaws. Yeah, I haven't even eaten maggots yet. To tell you the truth, that's kind of it's I just, got I got something to yeah. do tomorrow. <laughs> so you, you can explain this to me better than my very very minimal understanding of it is is there's something about the way their stomach is, is that the way they process food, it has some sort of larger effect on the whole body of the, of the maggot itself. Does it, what I'm saying make any sense at all? It depends on the nutrient content of the food. You know, like I don't know if I would personally eat maggots that were eating a, um, uh, eating like a piece of meat or, or something along that. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. Having a corn fed uh, quail. You know, it's going to have that taste level and that, that mm-hmm. level of, of nutrients right. with, with the, with the, um, with the maggots, you're still getting that protein pack, pack a little morsel. But, uh, uh, as far, as far as doing that, you know, it, it does have an effect on the, on the body, but really not that much. It's more the species, you know, how big is this maggot going to get? So like these tiny little maggots that right. might be on a pawpaw tree, you yep. know, yeah, they'll, 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 they'll be a little bit of nutrition and it'll be a good bit. You know, there's more minerals um, or more vitamins that have been synthesized inside that little creature um, that you'll get than more than just eating the, the pawpaw itself. I don't know if you can eat pawpaw, um, but uh, well, there you go. You yeah. It's yep. a, it's a way to hmm. get to those nutrients a little bit easier. But that that's about the 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 vast the vast area of or the awesome. um, gray area of my knowledge for that because I haven't really researched benefits that you get out of eating the smaller things that are eating small stuff unless you get a whole bunch of them. All right, guys, we I am just looking at the time. This happens almost every time we have a guest, doesn't it, Craig? And I'm just looking at the time. We have gotten through some really great stuff on on jungles, just survival in general dispelling some myths about jungle danger dangers and venomous snakes we've gotten into some edible bugs but we haven't even talked bushcraft knife design martial arts uh not much on beekeeping or anything else the interesting things that joe has kicking around in his brain so i am going to propose joe that we have you back how's that sound to you that sounds awesome Well, Joe, thank you so much. And 
I am glad that you've already agreed to come back on again. So, Craig, you want to take us out of here? Yeah, man. Just I would just like to echo, Joe, thank you so much. It's been a great, great opportunity to learn from yes, you. Yes, thank you. Pick up a lot of tips. And we'll put links for everything that Joe's talked about down in the description mm-hmm. below. So we'll be looking for all that stuff. So anything else you want to see in closing, Joe, before I shut us out of here? Uh, well, hopefully you guys are listening to this podcast on your way to your next adventure you know skills and gear are one things but the adventure and the experience itself is something that's timeless so make sure you just get out and have fun thanks joe appreciate it thanks joe so everybody subscribe to the podcast now hey guess what it's free to do so to ensure that you don't miss out on this or any other episode that we put out many thanks to each of you for listening who have already done that that's that's huge we appreciate that greatly and if you enjoy the podcast please share it with your friends and go over to itunes and give us a five-star rating or spotify or google podcast wherever you might be listening and don't forget our sponsor thanks to the sportsman's guide your support of sportsman's guide has been encouraging already where it's fantastic and it's helping to fund this show so it's a win-win so make sure you continue to check out and work with the sportsman's guide go to the survivalshow.com forward slash guide and this lets them know that we sent you and all that good stuff that you know how it works and behind the scenes and that kind of good stuff so look in the description below for all the links that we have mentioned in the show and i think that's it thanks guys for listening We'll see you next time on the Survival Show Podcast. Keep it simple, be positive, and stay sharp. Man, I love the Sportsman's Guide. They got like a new catalog set up recently and really brought up their game. But I, I, I've been, you know, getting catalogs for them for the past like 20 odd years. That's where you get all your really cool military equipment and stuff. Dude, I mean, in all seriousness, they they know where it's at. I mean, they can, they, for years, they, it seemed kind of uh, campy maybe. You know, and I'm not saying camping, but just kind of weak sauce. And man, they have amped up the game. When they started discussions with possibly being a sponsor here, I got to looking at their website, and I mean, they got they have one of everything. On yeah, there. and they have stuff nobody else has. Sportsman's Guide is really, really awesome for finding, you know, Swedish military axes. That's great steel. You know, they have Moras at great prices. And then every once in a while, you see these crazy things that you're like, I need a parachute or I need this for my next class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. no, the, the parachute thing. I want to go base. Yeah, to make like a base camp, you know, to uh, uh, yeah, sure. teach classes. Absolutely. Over.